So as I assume everybody knows, this past August, uh, there was a big storm by the name of Hurricane Harvey, among many others, uh, that hit um, particularly there was Mexico and the Caribbean, some parts of South America. But for us as Americans, it was uh, the news mostly revolved around Houston, Texas. Right? And, and I didn't know this until um, actually uh, a couple weeks ago, but turns out that Harvey is the second costliest natural disaster in history. I was like, I would have never guessed that. It's only second to the tsunami uh, that happened in Japan not too long ago. And, uh, I mean, something I did know, and maybe you do or don't, uh, it passed Katrina in terms of the damages done, at least in, in U.S. history. And so there was a lot of darkness and like, you know, obviously there were lives lost. There was um, just so much devastation worth billions of dollars. It's going to take a long time. I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years from now, there are still spring break trips going down to Houston to help in the repairs. It's a dark story. But thankfully, in the wake of the storm, a lot of good and encouraging stories and light came out, particularly revolving around one NFL player named J.J. Watt. That's Harvey. This is J.J. He's actually kind of like this, too, actually. Uh, but this is J.J. Watt, if you don't know who he is. Uh, it doesn't matter who he is. He's a football player. He's big and scary. He wants to hurt Tom Brady, so I hate him. But uh, he's a good guy. Um, and actually, let me show you a better picture of him. Uh, he plays for the Houston Texas. He lives in Houston, which is why uh, he came up in this story. Basically, J.J. set out to start a crowdsourcing campaign to raise money for uh, Hurricane Harvey relief. And so he opened up his own personal you-carrying website. He took a video, a selfie video on his iPhone, posted it on his Twitter account, said, hey, I want to collect $200,000 for Hurricane Harvey Relief to help the citizens of Houston. Won't you join me in collecting that money or fundraising? And then he ended up with a whopping $37 million. $200,000 goal, $37 million outcome, it just, he just kept, like the news kept following him, and he's like, I thought I only wanted 200, but then it kept going up and up, and his goal became 10 million, and then 20 million, and then he ended up with 37 million dollars. So, this is kind of like the big story that came out at the end of Hurricane Harvey, and it kind of left us with a really positive uh, taste in our mouths and feeling of, while there was great devastation, there was great response. There was great generosity from people who care about those who are suffering, who have lost all of their possessions, and at worst, even lost family members. I think stories like this show how like, intangibly powerful and uplifting generosity can be and how it tangibly changes the world. It makes life better. It, it, it just completely flips situations upside down. It has, it can has the power to have a dark situation that is just so like hopeless and has the power to just inject hope into difficult situations. Generosity is also one of the most powerful ways that we as human beings communicate what our deepest values are. Generosity also shows witnesses and onlookers to the life around you about what you really care about and who you are on the inside. For the next two weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series that we call The Cheerful Giver. And we're going to be talking about generosity in this area of financial stewardship as Christians. We're going to be talking about what it means for us to be stewards of our money and particularly what it means to be 
generous with the resources that God gives us. And unfortunately, for some reason, like it, how we deal with our money becomes a lesser topic on the totem pole of Christianity and discipleship. One of it, as a pa- one major area as a pastor I know is because we don't want to offend people. And how dare you talk to me about what I should do with my money? On uh, church planting, um, um, uh, coaching and co- church planting books, one of the things that they say about the number one reasons why church, new church plants fail is because they don't talk about money enough. But at the same time, they're afraid to talk about money because who's going to come to a church that just talks about what to do with their money? I want you to imagine that you had two friends. One friend is a Christian and they've been a Christian for one month. And the other Christian, our friend has been a Christian for 10 years. And let's say it's the topic of small group. And you say, hey, uh, have you guys ever been a part of a small group? And both say, no, I've never been a part of a small group. To the one month Christian, you say, oh, of course you haven't yet. But let me get you connected. It'll be really great for you. And you get to meet other Christians and work through faith together. If you met a person who's been Christian for 10 years and they've never been a part of a small group, your response would be, what? How is it that you've never participated in faith life with other people? That's a responsibility that you ought to fulfill. The strange thing is I seem like, it seems like financial stewardship has been categorized completely differently. We could be a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40, 50, 70 years of our lives and somehow we're just kind of like, oh yeah, you do what you want. But I think the, realize, the, the reality of the situation is that God, when he calls us to follow him, our area of discipleship, it encompasses everything. And you know how many times we've repeated this in different series at Cornerstone. In fact, if you were to count topics, Jesus talk, in his short time in ministry talks about money above everything. And so surely, generosity is a part of our following Jesus. And so I'm, I'm going to be preaching next week as well. And, and my goal in this miniature two-week series is not for us to come out of this being uh, professional finance managers and for you to know, oh, you should be using Mint app instead of the other one because it'll organize everything properly and you'll know all the different areas of your spending and how much goes into groceries. I don't care about your Excel spreadsheets. Oh, I mean, I do. But that's not the point of the series. I don't... The point is not for us to be excellent at financial management. The point of this series is following Jesus. The point of this series is how we are disciples of Jesus that want to resemble him. And for sure, one of the great characteristics of our Savior is how rich in generosity he is. And we want to follow that. We want to be like that. And we want to be a church that is known and marked and identified from the witnesses around us as one that abounds in generosity, not because it's the right thing to do, but because Jesus is like that. And we want to be just like him. It's funny how J.J. Watt, like, I mean, yeah, he's a Tom Brady killer, so I hate him, but now I love him. Because I see a little bit more into his heart that he actually does care about more than just Football, it's just a sport. He's going to retire in a handful of years. And he's showing the public, I, my life is more than just a pigskin. And similarly, my hope, if it could happen in just two weeks, is for us to be able to show the world that Cornerstone cares deeply about the suffering world and we care deeply about being generous. That we're following a generous God.
So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 8 today, and next week we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 9. And we're going to be seeing a really, really special story in this part of, the, of scriptures where the Apostle Paul is just teaching and, and, and con, uh, conversing with uh, the church in Corinth. And so today we're going to be in 8, and we're going to start from the first 15 verses. So you can either pull out your Bible or you can read up along the screen with me. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, we'll be starting from verses 1 and going through 15. The Apostle Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, as we read this passage, it's kind of in the middle of his letter, and it's fairly long, and it's kind of like, where is this all coming from? And what's, it just seems like we're just, if you're reading through 2 Corinthians, it seems, seems really abrupt and kind of random. Um, and so basically, let me, let me start by giving some context to the story. So in 1 Corinthians, so years before, Paul penned this letter to the same church in Corinth, and he, he brings up this situation. So basically, in Jerusalem, there was great famine. So the Judean church, they were suffering. They became poor. They were poverty-stricken, destitute. People were in a really, really bad situation. And so the Apostle Paul says, okay, that means we need to respond and help them. So he starts going around and writing letters and traveling to the surrounding churches, particularly Gentile ones, and says, hey, we need to take up a collection and help our Jewish brothers and sisters. They're literally starving to death. We have to intervene. And so he asks all the churches, who wants to respond? Who wants to participate? And he says it in verse 10 that the church in Corinth, they were one of the first to be like, hey, we'll do it. We'll sign up, we'll participate, and they started the collection, but we find out that a few years later, they didn't continue. They don't keep their end of the bargain, they don't collect as much as they said they would, and basically their energy and their excitement and joy to support this church fizzles out, and then it becomes nothing. 
So this is where Paul enters in. He writes a letter again. He says, hey, he's trying to remind them. Remember you said that you were going to help. They're still in need. And he uses a case study, the church in Macedonia that we read about, as a great example of generosity. And these are the people that, my goodness, we all should study and look up to. So let's read these verses again. So the brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Because in the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So we see that the Macedonian church, these people are the poster child for generosity. They are the church that we look up to. They are the godly example. I was saying this to the people at retreat that we all talk about the heroes in the Bible that we would love to meet if you could get into a time machine and zoom back. I want to meet these people because something is different about them. They teach us something powerful about biblical generosity because look in verse 2. To me, this verse makes no sense. There are words that are so contradictory that do not belong in the same sentence. The Apostle Paul says they were going through severe trial. Look up there. He says they were going through extreme poverty. Yet simultaneously, They overflow with joy, and they are rich in generosity. That doesn't belong in the same sentence. How do a suffering people who are under extreme poverty end up overflowing in joy and being rich in generosity? How is it that these people give what Apostle says beyond their means, beyond their ability? And then how do these very same people, he says they urgently pleaded. They're like, hey, remember that you didn't even ask us to give in the donation to the Jerusalem church, but can we do that too? Can we participate too? He begs them, take our money. I don't get it. This is remarkable to me because what we know is the situation is either the same or I'm just going to, by my study, I'm going to assume their situation could have been worse. Again, I mentioned that the, the Jerusalem church, they were suffering because of famine. The Macedonian churches, when the when Apostle Paul says severe trial, extreme poverty, they were undergoing persecution. I, the, the, the commentators and historians don't know if they were being murdered at this point, but they do know that they were being stripped of their jobs They had no source of income. They were being put into the corners and the oppressed of society. So they were suffering. And yet, they want to give. They've hit rock bottom. I have to be 100% transparent and, and, and confess to all of you. If I was a part of the Macedonian church, I would say, um, we need help. Why would we ever give to other people? If I was a part of the Macedonian church, I confess to you, friends, that I'm pretty confident. I would say, we can't afford that. We can't even pay our own bills. All of us have lost our jobs. These, the government is like putting us in a corner. We might lose our lives. But instead of begging for help, demanding help, they beg to give. They beg to participate. And this is so encouraging for us to be able to look upon these saints, these godly people, and to learn something about biblical generosity, which is my first point. That biblical generosity, 
is not a response of financial wealth, but rather spiritual health. Biblical, respo- uh, biblical generosity is a response to spiritual health, not financial wealth. I think we all have to confess that we make our generosity hinge on how comfortable we are about our financial state. How many bills are going out? How much is coming in the paycheck and how many of the expenses are going out? How much debt we are in? Or, let's be real, how much we would rather spend the money on something else? We tend to hinge our giving based upon our comfort or, and, or, and or we're waiting to the moment where we've made it or we've made so much money and once I have expendable cash and I'm no longer a graduate student in debt or a working entry-level job, then I'll be generous. Our situations dictate how much we give. But they flip this side upside down. You have a church that is rock, hit rock bottom and yet they are joyful, they're excited, and they are generous. And this to me proves that this is not charity they are doing. They're not volu- this isn't volunteerism. This is not excitedly responding to a celebrity who starts a giving campaign. This is deeper than that. This is heart transformation. This is otherworldly. My only explanation, the only thing I could possibly say is that this is a response of people who have richly received grace. This can only come from people whose hearts have been transformed by the grace of God. After J.J. Watt posted his thing and the big story and he went on the you know, news, people were interviewing him, and then uh, a part of the story that I left out that made me like him even more, he was like, hey, like, I cannot believe that $37 million came out, and there's a lot of pressure on me now, and I promise I'm going to do my due diligence. So it turns out he contacted the leadership of the New Orleans Saints, because that football team um, uh, was a big part of the the restoration in Hurricane Katrina. He started contacting CEOs and organizational leaders of, of charities and of relief orgs. And he says, I need help. I don't know how to steward this money best. And he's like, I'm going to do it. And so even more good news came out of it. People from Africa and Asia and Australia were started giving. And he's like, and I'm like, yo, these people, they don't, do they even know what football is? And yet they start to give. And so all this good, good news and so, and I don't want to be cynical, but in the midst of all the good news, I have to be honest that I had a second thought that wasn't so positive. It was, okay, praise God for J.J. Watt, but where's everybody else? Where are all the other football players? Where are all the people who are making $20 million a year salaries? Where are all the Hollywood movie stars and the, and the rock stars and and let's be real like those aren't the only rich people we're all the everyday rich people the investment bankers or physicians and dentists and lawyers where why is it that jj's story is so unique if generosity hinged on large bank accounts, then wouldn't JJ's story not be news? Wouldn't there be so many rich people giving that it's like normal? Why would any news station even just choose to write about that? 
All of us know that feeling. I can't afford to be generous. I'm not there yet, but it's not a financial thing. Generosity is a heart matter, not a financial one. We often think that if I was a billionaire, I would change the world. And let me just say that I am the chief of all chiefs of people who say that. I pep talk myself and I say, God, if you give me the Powerball ticket, I promise I'm going to set up scholarships. I'm going to build a seminary. I'm going to build hospitals in Africa and in the developing world. I will be the most generous person in the world. But would I? Something that I came to realization as literally I was in my office writing this sermon, and as I was writing this part, I thought to myself, Danny, don't think that your willpower is stronger than your flesh. You might win the Powerball, but that does not guarantee that you will be generous. Because your bank account size will not be reflective of your generosity. Biblical generosity is not birthed from financial wealth. It comes forth from a grace-filled spiritual health and closeness in our walk with Jesus. You know that phrase that people use, uh, or I guess rich people use, is, oh, money's no object. You know that phrase? Oh, money's no object. I'll, I'll buy it. Or I got you. You know, there's like the very popular movie scene of like one dude being like, oh, yo, like that car is awesome, but it's too expensive. And then the rich guy comes in and he's always kind of greasy. You know, the hair is always greasy. And he's like, oh, like money's no object. And he just, ring, cha-ching, and they just zoom off in a Ferrari. My dream is for the church, like capital C church and cornerstone church, for us to steal that phrase, take it for our own, own it and say, you can't use it because it's ours, but completely change the definition in that we say money's no object because we are generous, not because we're rich. I would love, my dream is for the church, for Christians, who people who say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. For us to be the ones to steal that phrase and for when disaster hits or when people are suffering or when missionaries are in need or when another hurricane comes and people lose their homes and their loved ones, for the church to be the ones to step up to say, I'm going to get involved and it won't be dependent on how much debt we have, but rather it will be dependent on how rich in generosity we are in our hearts. And to say, money is no object. Let me help. Biblical generosity is a response of spiritual health, not financial wealth. So let's continue to read. Paul says, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring to completion this act. So remember, they started it. They raised their hands and said, oh, we'll do it. And they started, but they didn't complete it. He says, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So this is the part where the Apostle Paul, he gets really pastoral with us. He's not reprimanding the church. He's not like saying, oh, I can't believe you guys started this thing and now you didn't even finish it. Like shame on you. Look at this. I am not commanding you. And then later in verses 11 through 15, 
at the, the end of the passage that we read, he gets really practical. He says, and, and I don't want you to burden yourselves. This isn't about you in becoming hard-pressed by helping others. The point is equality, so that when you're in a tough place, they help you. And when they're in a tough place, you help them. And he's very pastoral. He's not reprimanding or trying to make anybody feel guilty. He's saying it's a test of your sincerity. The point that the Apostle Paul is trying to get at is our hearts. He's saying the measure of your discipleship, a fruit of your discipleship, a sign of the genuineness and the sincerity of your discipleship is going to be how generous you are. If you notice something, I won't flip through all the slides, but if you are looking at your own Bible, he never uses the word money a single time. He doesn't say finance a single time. He frames everything in grace. He says in verse 6, to bring to completion what? Not this fundraiser, not this financial donation, not this money giving. He says in verse 6, completion of the act of grace. In verse 7, he says, see that you excel in this grace. In verse 1, he says, see what God has done in grace to the Macedonian church. If we've experienced the grace of God in our lives... A sign of that grace will be in how we give grace unto others. Grace received being grace given. Grace producing grace. Grace begetting grace. Which is my second point. That biblical generosity is a response to grace. Cornerstone. Can we be a church that because we have received so much in Jesus can give much? I want us to look closely at verse 7 and to read it in a really personal way. Paul says to the church in Corinth, since you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and love, see that you excel in this. And he's not trying to just like kissing their butts. The church in Corinth was actually doing really, really well. They were a hub. They were the hustle-bustle church. They had a lot going on. They were large. In the modern day, they would be the mega church that's in a really cool city and doing great things and transforming the community. They were doing really great. But his point is that now you mustn't let your generosity lag behind. And so I thought of this week, if Paul came and he said the same thing to Cornerstone, how, what would that sound like? And the first thing I thought of, I mean, for obvious reasons, was retreats. There are 130-something of us missing right now because we're all at retreat. This is the biggest retreat we've ever had in Cornerstone history. And did you know that three weeks before, we had 118 people missing because we were at retreat? And then in February, we're going to have another retreat? Did you know that the staff and leadership team every every year goes on retreats? And then the worship ministry goes on retreats every year? And the prayer ministry occasionally goes on retreats? We love retreats. We're like the best. It should be in our mission statement. Breaking barriers and going to Pilgrim Pines. We, that's our thing. And the, and the thing is, like, if you only, I mean, nobody's only been here, but it's, it's actually unique. I have friends who are pastors who struggle to get anybody to sign up, and so they stop doing them. Because they'll do them, and, man, you know, like 40 people will go, and they're like, ah, oh, that was kind of lame. And... <laughs> Let's be real. A lot of people, a lot of churches, they're like, why would I go to an uncomfortable cabin in the woods and sleep in a room with strangers and then give you $100 for that? 
And so nobody signs up, but for some reason, we love them here at Cornerstone. And I'm not, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not in the sense that this is a legitimate fruit of our ministry. That we love each other and we want to go away and love each other more. So many new people get full, like, into the fold of our church because of our retreats. And again, there are 130-something people. Pilgrim Pines could not, almost couldn't host us because we were too large. Our midweek faith, I think the Apostle Paul would say this in our thing. In, if he were to say, you were, Cornerstone Church, you excel in everything. You excel in retreats. You excel in midweek faith. The number of campus small groups that are happening right now and have happened for years, the number of campus large groups that happen on top of that that have been happening for years, the number of young adult community groups that are happening right now is the most ever. We've had the most signups ever. Our problem, most churches, their issue is getting people to sign up for small group. Our issue, our literal problem that Pastor Hojin was saying was we have too many people signed up. We didn't have enough leaders. So he was like waving a white flag. He's like, somebody help me. Like Pastor Ojin was like suffering on his little island. We need CG leaders. What kind of problem is that? That's an amazing one. How many of you guys are roommates? So many people in our church, we even live together. We can't get enough of each other. How good is our midweek fellowship? Most churches, I mean, I don't know most, a lot of churches, they go in, they receive Sunday, and they're gone. Maybe they'll casually have a a coffee in the lobby, but they're not living together, meeting each other three times a week, going on vacations together, hanging out with their kids together, and doing everything together. Our community here is phenomenal. Let's talk about sports. When was the last Sunday? Jeopardy question that there wasn't a group of Cornerstone playing and throwing balls around at each other's faces. I cannot tell you because we just had our football tournament and before that we had flag football every single Sunday. We had our volleyball tournament. Before that we had people playing volleyball every single Sunday. We play in a softball league every single Saturday before that. And when it's too cold, everybody goes to FitRec and plays basketball. What kind of church likes to be with each other that much and owns sports equipment? And knows every single field in the city of Boston. I'm convinced that some guys at this church, if 20 fields are booked, they would know what the 21st one available one is. In worship ministry, our worship ministry has been one of the attractors since day one of the plant of this church. Where all these musical and gifted people show up. If this is your first Sunday here, like just come next week too when the whole band is here. And it's just like, oh my God. I didn't go out and look for people. They just show up. Did you hear Myung singing? I feel like angels cry when he sings. <laughs> He's taken. Sorry, ladies. It's like Asian Whitney Houston. <laughs> Myung Ni Houston. People just show up. And, and my priority as the pastor of the worship ministry is that we put our wor- worship doesn't equal music. And our worship is priority and, and, and ultimate, and then music is secondary. And yet these people who are amazingly gifted show up and they still put worship first. And man, the fruit of the... I could go on and on and on and on and how spoiled I am to be a pastor of this church. And the health and the vibrancy we have in this ministry... But just as the Apostle Paul says, as your pastor, I want to steal his words and say, Cornerstone, but since you excel in these many things, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. 
Cornerstone, we excel in many things. Let us also excel in this grace of giving, of rich generosity. Grace is an overflow and the into grace. Biblical generosity is a response of grace. So my third and final point, um, it's the most important, but it, it's ironically the shortest because it could have been lumped into verse two, I mean point two, but I really, really wanted to give it its own slide, is that biblical generosity is a response to knowing Jesus. And the most important verse, if you memorize or learn or get familiar with any of the verses in the passage, it is this one. It is completely this one. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, he really poetically pens this, this sentence and he, he juxtaposes these words that like are complete opposites and he pairs it in such a vibrant, powerful way. Let's, let's just read this slowly again. For you know that the grace of our Lord... Again, how many times has he repeated grace and not said money, right? Lord, of our Je- Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake becomes poor so that you through his poverty becomes rich and he creates this sandwich of look at the depths of Jesus's love for you and the richness of his grace so that you would be rich in him our generosity is a fruit of knowing Jesus of experiencing Jesus's magnificent grace for us you know the song we sang knowing you I mean, every verse is amazing. The first verse is, really strikes me. All I once held dear and built my life upon, all the world endears and wars to own. Everything that I thought I wanted is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. My dream job, my dream salary, my dream family and spouse and kids who go on to you know, model, become model kids, my dream school, my dream car, all of my dreams, I'm convinced that, that's what we sang, right? That all of those things that we were so convinced were our deepest desires, they are not compared to knowing Jesus. So in summary, biblical generosity is a response to spiritual health, not financial wealth. I'm convinced, friends, and I can see it in, in my life, in, in other people's lives, I, we see it clearly in the Macedonians' lives that our giving will be determined by the grace in our hearts, not the dollars in our bank accounts. Biblical generosity is a response of grace. Receiving grace means giving grace. Grace begets grace. And biblical generosity is a response of knowing Jesus. When the generosity of Jesus hits us home in our hearts, we cannot help but become like him to live like him. So how do we respond? I want to challenge us, church, with two words or two verbs. Self-examining and planning. To self-examine and to plan. First, self-examining. What I mean is to ask yourself some serious questions. What I mean is to actually look at your bank statements, your credit card statements, 
and to ask yourselves, does my spending demonstrate a genuineness and sincerity of my discipleship? When looking at my budgeting, investing, saving, spending, whatever it is about stewardship, does it reflect my values? If someone were to see all of your spending, saving, investing, budgeting, if they were to look through all your statements, would they notice that you're following Jesus? Would they see that a recipient, someone who's been transformed by the grace of God, who's giving much grace? I want to challenge us, church, for all of us to self-examine and not to be distracted by, oh my goodness, like I'm such a sinner because I pay this much in rent. Your pie is not going to be, oh, like generosity is this much because you have to pay rent, you have to pay your debt off, you have to pay the utilities. Don't be distracted by the pie. Let's look and see what's reflected. Is there somebody there in the breakdown of it that is following Jesus? And then secondly, planning. After you self-examine, then plan. I want to challenge us to make one plan, one change, one commitment, one decision, no matter how small, for your spending, saving, budgeting, whatever it is about money, to start to reflect more who you follow, what your values are, what God you love and serve, what grace you have received. And some, you don't have to follow any of these guidelines, but some examples. If you believe in the mission and vision of this church, if all the fruit that I talked about, the good things that are going on at Cornerstone, if you want to see that get bigger and wider and more impactful, I want you to make one little plan and starting to give to the church. Or if you're already giving to increase that or get to your tithe. If not that, maybe you have a missionary friend who's out on the field right now. Or you have a particular country that your heart breaks for. Commit to regularly giving to that person or persons or organization that's supporting missionaries or planting churches in that nation. Go onto the website, click $5 a month. It doesn't matter the value. And say every two weeks it's going to go out automatically from my account and support missionaries in China. What do you love? Let your money reflect what you love. Last, one more example. Is there a cause in this world that your heart just, is just gets just wrenched for? Do you hate homelessness, hunger, the lack of clean water? Do you hate the fact that there are kids in this world who don't have access to education? Do you hate sex slavery? What do you hate in this world? We can make our budgeting reflect our hatred for those things, and our love for hope and redemption in Jesus. And it doesn't matter about the value or the dollar amount. What matters is the heart. We have a particular church here, right? The Macedonian church that is highlighted by the Apostle Paul and says, look at these amazing people. And if you read the passage quickly, you think that they collected a lot, right? That they were so rich in generosity. And when we hear rich in generosity, we, I mean, maybe I'll speak for myself. I tend to think, wow, so much money. 
But remember, they had none. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have a source of income. They might not even have homes at this point. They were suffering and destitute and under extreme trial. So when Paul came around and they were like, oh, oh please, we, we're begging you to let us participate. They may have collected coins, right? Yet Apostle Paul says, look at this richness and generosity. A lot of us get hung up on the fact that we can't donate hundreds and thousands. But what if we were to donate tens and twenties? It's not about the value, it's about the heart. And something in closing, as your pastor, that I, I mean, you guys know that I have this, you know, there's a thing in my heart for this. I, I, I lead our Lazarus at the Gate uh, ministry and overseeing CMJ. And a lot of our, our church fundraisers and stuff have been under my responsibilities. And, and it's not because of that. Like I have a chip on my shoulder or it's not because I'm ranking. Like, oh, this is more important than you and your prayer life. Or, you know, like coming to Sundays is here, but giving is like right below. I'm not trying to rank the different expressions of our discipleship. But one thing that is crystal clear to me that I... I've just seen time and time again the reason why I'm begging you to go home and to make one plan and to start this journey of being generous is because when we give up our finances to God, our walk with him completely transforms. It happens, trust me. When we can let go of some of the things that we hold tightly, most tightly to, our hearts follow in really, really remarkable ways. We start to trust him deeper. And you start to see fruit come out in so many other areas of your life. And it's not a surprise. You know why it's not a surprise? Because when we let go of an idol, Jesus replaces it. And so, of course, all these other areas of your discipleship are going to benefit. So I'm asking as your pastor to go home today and make one, to self-examine and to say, what area of my finances do I want to be clear and reflective of my love? And to make one little change. In closing, I want to read verse 9 again as we wrap up our time together. And actually, can I invite all of you to rise? Um, I'll invite Myung to, to come up too. I want to read this together as, as we stand in, in reverence for this word and also especially in just giving a little bit of priority to this verse as the source for which we can respond, the reason why we can even say this at all, and the reason why we can even stand here and be here as his sons and daughters, as his disciples. So receive this church, verse 9. For you know, Cornerstone, son and daughter, beloved child of God, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let us as Cornerstone model our lives after Jesus Because it was through his poverty, through the price that he had to pay, that we became blessed abundantly with the riches we have. We are recipients of the riches because of the work of Jesus. Because he became poor for your sake. So that we can be here and say that I am a redeemed 
son and daughter of God. Let us grow to be like him. Let us respond in generosity and bring glory to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow in prayer with me? Lord God, we commit our hearts and souls and our lives to you because you did not spare anything to love us. You did not just give a part of yourself, but you gave the entirety of your life. You surrendered your life obediently to the will of the Father on the cross. You died a sinner's death. You bore the wrath of God. You were the slain lamb and the sacrifice and the atonement for our sin. And Jesus, we want to become just like you. We want to spare no expense. We want to hold nothing back. We want to open our hearts and our hands humbly and submissively before you and to say, Jesus, I am following you in every area of my life. God, I pray that in this area of financial stewardship and of generosity, that you would make us rich in generosity because you have been generously rich to us. And we pray that what we love and the God that we follow will be crystal clear and reflected in the way that we live our lives because we're generous. So Jesus, would your spirit do great work in us to make us more like you. God, we close by lifting up a prayer for the suffering world, for people suffering still from the hurricanes, or people who are undergoing persecution or oppression in this world, for people who are without food and daily water, for people who are without health care, for the missionaries on the field who are struggling to get by, for the children who are working and not at school. We pray that the church would respond in a richness of generosity, being the image of Jesus Christ, because money is no object to us, because we love you and we love them. So would you do this great work in our souls and our hearts today? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.